Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Well, you know, I've never been a a huge basketball fan. And I I don't think that it's necessarily that I I don't like basketball. I've got a legit problem with with claustrophobia. So so this social distancing thing is actually, I could get get used to that for for just a little bit. It's right down my alley. I I think my problem is with indoor sports in general because 95% of the time indoor sports take place in a crowded gymnasium and I've got long legs and it never ceases that I'll sit down and somebody's going to need to get up and cross over me and and if you don't have long legs you don't understand how hard it is to get them out of the way when somebody's trying to to walk past you in a in a crowded sort of of situation uh, there's people all over the place and and honestly I struggle with that closeness I mean I'm the guy that that if an elevator has too many people on it I will get off uh, you know, I'll hit the next floor and I'll bail. It, it just, it, it stresses me, it creates anxiety for me. And so I won't lie that when we started thinking through this sermon series, uh, tying it into March Madness and the whole basketball thing, that was actually a pretty big deal for me to, to embrace that idea. And I would pick the one year to do a March Madness themed sermon series when there is no March Madness. So, so feel free, if, if you're just itching to do a bracket, feel free to put each of these sermons in a bracket and pit them against one another. You can go to YouTube and look at the number of views, and you can decide which one gets the most views, and then we'll, we'll have a playoff at the end and see which of these sermons actually, actually wins. Now, this is either a great idea, or it's the first sign that we're all starting to go insane. I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, we'll have to figure that out as this turns into a longer period of time. But I will say, as we have been working through this, we've been talking about the promise of Genesis 3.15, and we've been tracking that promise through the storyline of the Bible. Today is stop number seven on our journey. Now, if you've missed anything, you can go back and you can hit the podcast, or you can check out the YouTube videos. You can get caught up. you got plenty of time to do so, so you can get stay caught up and, and, and know exactly where we're at. But, but last week, we talked about the promise of a king and a kingdom. As we followed the seed of Eve through the great-grandson of Abraham, uh, his, his great-grandson named Judah. Now, if you're familiar with the story, then you know that Joseph, who was Judah's brother, ended up in Egypt through a series of very unfortunate events that were partly orchestrated by Judah. However, his presence in Egypt was, was actually the means by which God preserved his people. So Abraham's descendants settled in a region of Egypt known as Goshen. And they made their way home, they made that place their home and they actually flourished there for a season. That is until a king arose in Egypt that didn't know his history. It's important that we know our history. And he didn't understand the importance of Joseph or he didn't understand the importance of the people of Joseph and this pharaoh enslaved the people. In Genesis 15 God actually told Abraham that this would be the case. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation 
they serve. So not only did, did God predict the extended stay of the Israelites in Egypt, it was going to be more than just Joseph and Judah's generation. He also predicted that there would be tremendous judgment against the Egyptians. So after 400 years, God calls Moses to become the leader of these people. He equips him with powerful signs and wonders, and he uses Moses to, to usher in a series of nine plagues, all in an attempt to free the Israelite slaves. Now, if we're honest, we recognize that our current situation with this COVID-19, it can be a little unnerving, but it's nothing like what the Egyptians faced in those dark days when God brought that proud nation to its knees. Yet in spite of the damage that was wreaked by these disasters, the, the king of Egypt was, was unmoved. He refused to listen due to his hardened heart. And so God brought about one final judgment, known as the death of the firstborn. And it's that final plague today that I want us to consider as we continue our journey, but more specifically, the remedy to that final plague. This morning, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse 21. I would encourage you in your homes, if you would, stand as we read God's word together from Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord, has, that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads, and they worshipped. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its power, its prominence in our lives. We ask that you would bless it, its reading, and its application today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, this plague that begins here is unlike any of the other plagues that Egypt faced. And the the biggest difference, perhaps, that, that we don't often think about is that, is that all the other plagues in which God sent to the Egyptians were, were very passive as far as the Israelites were concerned. They didn't really have to do anything. They, they didn't have to actively participate to, to mitigate the consequences of that plague. They were kind of like just observers. They, they experienced a little bit of the first of the plagues, but but as the plagues grew more severe, the Israelites were actually spared. The Passover, however, was very different. If the Israelites wanted to be spared, the terrible consequences of this judgment, it required their active participation. Each home, each household had to comply. Otherwise, the cost to that home would have been the same as the cost to the Egyptians. You might be asking, well, why would God require such participation? 
Surely God could tell the difference between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. He could tell that they weren't the same people. Did God really need a sign in order to skip the house? Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, Abraham was justified by his faith in God's promises. This is no different. The Hebrews here, they would be delivered from judgment by their faith in God's promises. Their faith was demonstrated by their willingness to mark their doors with the blood of the Lamb. Now, those who didn't believe weren't spared the judgment. Because the problem is the Israelites were guilty, just like the Egyptians. Now, their guilt looked differently. They didn't have the same issues that the Egyptians had, but the Israelites were guilty, just like the Egyptians. That's why blood had to be spilled for those Israelites. Now, the Egyptians were certainly idolaters. They wanted nothing to do with the worship of the one true God. They had their pantheon of gods. But let's, let's keep this in mind. The Israelites were also guilty of sin. In fact, you won't find a, a generation of Israelites that doesn't wrestle with some kind of idolatry in the Bible. This particular generation of Israelites, well, they weren't known for their perseverance. They wrestled with doubt and unbelief. As the Exodus story continues beyond the Passover, you would think that a generation that had witnessed God's powerful hand of deliverance, that they would be faithful unto death. But the fact of the matter is it doesn't take very long for them to give up hope. You know, the psalmist understands this in Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul would return to this theme in Romans chapter 3. There in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he quotes the psalm. But then in verse 23, he states the fundamental human problem in his own words. He says in a verse that so many of us have memorized, for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. The Israelites were guilty like the Egyptians were guilty, but they were saved, not because of anything that, that they had earned, but because of God's grace and because of their faithful obedience to the Lord. They trusted God and God rescued them which is exactly what Paul says there in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. They are justified by his grace as a gift. How's this work? Well, the lamb functioned as a substitute. This concept of substitute is one, it's one of the most important concepts in the Bible going forward. The Passover lamb shed its blood in the place of the firstborn. When the Israelites met at Mount Sinai, they received the law. The law prescribed sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to deal with all the various sins and infractions against God's law. And those sacrifices were rightly understood as substitutes. Paul declares this and reminds us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. That's the fair and just penalty for sin, so there must be a substitute. As Christians, when we read through the law, we're always struck at how bloody the law is. 
There is blood, there's the sprinkling of blood, there's blood that's being spilled, there is death. The tabernacle and the temple were places of tremendous bloodshed and death. Not of people, but of, but of the animals. And, and that constant shedding of blood was a constant reminder that sin came at a cost. And every time an animal was slain in those places, it was done under the clear understanding of substitution. That animal was taking the place of the worshiper. Now, that theme of substitution would carry itself all the way into the New Testament. When we look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are looking at the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for what? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The New Testament authors recognize this. And it's one of the clearest doctrines in the New Testament. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself, talking of Jesus, bore our sins, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It's a substitute. Jesus took our place. Jesus died our death. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve. He was the perfect substitute for our sins. When we consider the Passover lamb, we need to also understand that the lamb was temporary. The lamb was temporary. The problem with the lamb is that it was inadequate. The law prescribed that each and every single year the Israelites were to gather as families. They were to slaughter a lamb. They were to be reminded of God's deliverance every single year. Book of Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, were no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And listen to verse 4 of Hebrews 10. For it is impossible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Those are strong words. It's impossible. So we have this prescription in Exodus chapter 12 of a lamb that is to be slain, that is to be a substitute. And that theme of substitution will follow it, will, will track all the way through the Bible until it finds itself finally and permanently worked out in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it isn't that there was something wrong with God's prescription for deliverance. It's that God's prescription did exactly what it was intended to do. Year after year, generation after generation, these people had to go through these rituals. I, I suspect 
that after a lifetime of offering sacrifices, there was probably a sense in the community, how long must this go on? How long do we have to continue doing this? How long will it take? Some of us maybe feel this way after having to spend a week at home. How long do we have to endure? Each and every single year, there was a renewed consciousness of their sin and their rebellion. And each and every single year, there was a costly reminder of what it takes to cover sin. But that's exactly what all the bloodshed, it's what all that repetition, it's exactly what it was supposed to do. To remind people of how great a cost sin was. And it all accomplished this singular reality. It pointed to a greater need. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 says right after we left off in verse 4. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, those offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay attention to those last three words. Hebrews <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Once for all. Once for all. He did away with the first in order to establish the second. You see, Jesus satisfies the just penalty for sin once and for all. He does it on our behalf Listen, we literally could spend the rest of our lives unpacking the significance of this and marveling in the significance of this. This is the most incredible truth that we can focus on as we think about what Christ has done on our behalf. As we approach this Easter season, and I think we're all coming to grips that this Easter season may look very different than any Easter that we've ever experienced before. We need to approach this Easter season considering the lesson of the Passover lamb. Regardless of where you are this morning, regardless of how large of a screen you're watching on, whatever podcast app you may be listening to later in the week, we need to remember the lesson of the lamb that points to the greatest need that we have, and that's to have our sins atoned for and taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want you to understand the most important thing today that you can understand. We are all guilty. 
Every single one of us are guilty. We all come up short of God's perfect standards. If we were under the sacrificial system, we would be required year after year after year after year after year to offer the blood of bulls and lambs to try to cover our sin. We are guilty. But there is a tremendous substitute that has been provided. A substitute, not a lamb that has to be slain, and blood spilled on the front porch, but a substitute has been provided in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to me, this is so important. That substitute is permanent. We don't have to revisit that offering ever again. When our Lord Jesus gave his life on the cross, he declared, it is finished. And men and women of the church, we need to believe it is is finished. The final substitute was offered once and for all. And that substitute, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his broken body, it meets your greatest need. We've talked a lot about needs in the last couple of weeks, and our culture has defined many needs for us. Our civilization has a strange need for things like toilet paper in this strange season. Many people feel that they need a, a test for a virus. Many people feel that they need certain things. We certainly understand a need for food and sustenance and shelter. We understand those, those basic needs. We certainly want to help meet the needs of those in our community who are at greatest risk. But I want to tell you today, your greatest need is not related to a virus that may or may not have started in a different country and spread through the different means of travel that we have today. Your greatest need today is, is not a cure. As, as devastating as this is, and this, this, this will have long-term effects in our culture and in our world. It's not your greatest need today. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest need that we have today is to have our sins atoned for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting under the sound of my voice, whether it's in living rooms around our community or in headphones or whatever in the weeks to come, you need to understand that in spite of what the community says your needs are, in spite of what you perceive your needs are, your greatest need today is for Jesus. And so in light of the climate in which we find ourselves today, I would ask you on this day, what have you done to meet that greatest need? Have you listened to the voice of the Lord calling you into a personal relationship? Have you listened to what he wants from you today to restore you, to cover your sins, once and for all. He is the perfect sacrifice for your sins. He is the answer to your greatest problem. He is today what you need more than anything in this world. I would invite you to pray with me together. God, we come before you today in strange and unique times Lord, we certainly gather today understanding that 
we don't fully know the extent of what tomorrow holds, but we do believe and affirm the promise that you are in charge of eternity. And Lord, we certainly understand that there are many people today who are scared, who are nervous, who have anxiety about all sorts of different things, from their finances to their health, to their family, to their jobs. And in spite of that tremendous amount of need, God, would you give us the introspection right now in this moment to look inside our own hearts and to see that that need for Jesus has been satisfied. If not, then on this day there's an opportunity to have that need taken care of. And so God, in these moments to follow, whether it be later on today or, or later on this week, would you move in our hearts and give us the opportunity to respond to the need in our lives and receive the offer that's been extended to us through Jesus. Lord, we love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.